Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. We have a continuation of some of the husbands of the women in our Betrayal Trauma Recovery community. We're discussing their epiphanies about abuse and how they've been trying to change their lives. We had an unfortunate event when we recorded that David's mic ended up going out. And so although he participated in this second section of the interview, we don't have the audio. So we'll have to have him come on again another time. Before we continue with that interview, so many women are wondering what... What types of abusive behaviors am I dealing with and what kind of boundaries do I need to set? So for all you women out there, read Why Does He Do That by Lundy Bancroft and The Verbally Abusive Relationship by Patricia Evans. Those are the two books you need to read. Getting into Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group is also essential so that you can jump on to a live face-to-face session online with one of our coaches at any time. We have multiple sessions a day in multiple time zones so that you can describe what abusive behaviors you are seeing or just describe the behaviors and see are these abusive or not. Our coaches can help you know what boundaries to set and help you get to emotional safety, psychological safety, sexual safety. This type of sexual coercion and emotional and psychological abuse is really hard to see, especially when you're in it. And you don't start seeing it for what it is until you set appropriate boundaries. So to check out our Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group session schedule, go to btr.org, click on services and online support group. You can see our daily schedule, sign up. It is the least expensive professional help out there. It's only $125 a month for over 80 sessions a month. It's extremely inexpensive and it's also the best help you can get. So many therapists, clergy, other people, they don't understand this type of sexual coercion and this type of emotional and psychological abuse. Check out the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group schedule, also known as our online daily support group, which you can find on our website. If you're looking for support for an abusive man who is trying to change and wants help, Center for Peace is what we recommend. You can find their website at cenfp.org. Okay, back to our conversation. And this will just be with Gus and Adam because unfortunately David's mic didn't work. So if we get that audio back, maybe we'll do another episode with just his responses. And if not, we'll have him back on and interview him again. As you have taken your sins, so to speak, to the altar, you have been honest, you have done the work, you've exercised faith through action, that sort of thing. Was that a part of your recovery process where you thought, okay, I'm going to do everything possible. I'm going to do a living amends. And then with hope and prayer, pray that through Christ and his grace and his mercy could make things right. Was that a part of your progress? And not to say that that people have to be Christian to overcome abusive behaviors or to change. They don't. Many of our listeners are. And so I wanted to kind of add that in for our Christian listeners. And for our non-Christian listeners, it's still possible to stop abusive behaviors. I grew up, I had a really strong belief in God. I read my scriptures all the time. By all intents and purposes, I was a great spiritual kid. When I was trying to get sober... I began to recognize that my relationship with God was partly a huge lie. 
not that God was a lie, but that I was lying to myself about the things that I had been taught and the things that I'd learned to the point that who I was believing in wasn't really very capable of helping me at all. I would be the first to say, oh no, I believe in grace. But when it got down to it, I really didn't believe those things. I always believed, well, I got to do my part first. And my part was never good enough for him to do his part. It's not very godlike if he can't save me from myself. So I had to go through a reformation process. And I think a lot of addicts, especially religious ones, they keep maintaining this false belief in something that they don't look at the deep beliefs that they have in it and how they react to those beliefs. And so it doesn't quite weave together. I hear a lot of people talk about, oh, like fighting your addiction. And if I just do these certain things, I'll beat this or I'll get over this or we'll fight through this. And I'm a firm believer that I totally lost that fight. That's why I'm an addict. Like I failed. I'm the guy that's bleeding and dying on the ground and I have to have God. I have no ability to fight it. Thank you for sharing that. I believe that Christ cannot help us if we are unwilling to obey the commandments. I mean, he can always help us. He can always help us, but we need to obey the commandments, period, right? So honesty and truthfulness and things like that. And starting to take a step toward obedience is what will help Christ actually activate his grace in our lives. And for people who are unable to tell the truth in the moment, praying to be able to tell the truth or praying for an opportunity to tell the truth or just starting to try to make progress toward that, I think, is at least a first step. But you can't take that step if you don't know what the truth is yourself. It's so complex for addicts, I think, because in the beginning or when you're active in your addiction, reality and your perceptions of reality are so skewed that it's difficult to even know where to start. So I appreciate what you guys said. So many women in our community are being gaslit currently. Their husbands are gaslighting them. And we had a recovering addict on a while ago, and he gave some examples that were really subtle of ways that he gaslit his wife. And we had tons of women write back and say, we want more examples of that. So if you guys are willing, can you tell some subtle ways that you lied or tried to make your wife feel like she was crazy back in the day when you were using abusive behaviors? Can you tell us some examples that you would use to help women recognize this type of gaslighting? I could write books on this. I was thinking of this earlier when you were talking about abuse because it is abuse. Making someone doubt themselves, I mean, that's probably the most abusive thing you can do is getting someone to question themselves and getting someone to question their belief in God is probably the worst thing you could ever do. All those subtle things, some of them, the questions in and of themselves can be good, but it's how we use them. For instance, wanting your wife's definition of something. I can ask her, well, what do you mean by this? And I could really be wanting to know. And then there are other times where if I'm gaslighting, I will ask, what do you mean? When you talk about this, what does that mean? When you say a slip, how do you perceive that slip to be? And kind of just asking as if I'm this curious person that's really wanting to know but I'm leading her away from 
her true feelings of something's wrong. And I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? Oh, that's weird. I don't, that's interesting. Why? I don't know why you'd feel that way. Yeah. It's also a subtle form of control a little bit, right? Letting her think that it's all her. And then there's the definitions. Well, you said, have I looked up anything? I didn't purposely go searching for anything online. I came across something on accident, but since she didn't ask me if I saw anything, she asked if I looked up something. That's completely different, so I don't have to talk about anything I might have accidentally found. The misleading, asking questions that don't really pertain to anything that she's asking me. Instilling any kind of confusion that I can because I'm terrified. You know, like, oh no, she's found out. Mm -hmm. And again, in that moment, it's abuse. You're not thinking, okay, I'm hurting her. The only person that you're thinking of in those instances is yourself, right? And how do I avoid getting caught and not recognizing it? Okay, Adam, what about you? Can you give us a, maybe one specific example of gaslighting that you used? Lying, for sure. That's a big one. But I think that would be a struggle. I wouldn't say that anything in addiction, you can just stop. Anyone can just stop. You know, I think there are people that can just stop certain things. But I think for me, just trying to control the outcome, the consequences, my environment, that was probably is still one that I would say I struggle with the most. Part of what helps me working towards this road to recovery is the fact that my wife, she's educated herself and she's not going to put up with it. And if I don't recognize it myself, she does. And I feel like I've gotten myself to a place to where if I don't recognize it and she points it out to me, I feel like I'm pretty good at putting the brakes on and saying, you're right, I see it now. And that's been super helpful. Yeah, when you guys read Verbally Abusive Relationship, there's this element of I feel good when I have power over rather than this mutual we're on the same plane kind of a thing. I really appreciate you for sharing that. As all of you are working toward living more healthy life and improving your relationship with your wife, you're all currently married. You're all currently living in the same homes. So you're not separated. For all intents and purposes, things are going well for all of you at this point, right? Um, in what ways do you continue to struggle with abusive tendencies? And how are you working continually to change? So let's talk about that for a bit. Have you made a decision like, I'm never going to do this thing again or whatever, and then you find it cropping up quite a bit or issues like that that you thought were a lot easier and then they're seeming to be harder than you imagined? Let's start with Gus. I've learned by now to never say I'm never going to do that again because that's the number one indicator that I will do it again. This issue comes up the most with how I am with my children just know I'm supposed to be the father figure, like you're supposed to listen to me. Even when I really haven't done anything to deserve you listening to me. This is probably one of the bigger issues for me in my life is it keeps cropping back. This is heading towards disaster. Take some steps back, try and move forward, then recognize it. It could be anything as simple as, hey, stop shouting. Not being nice about it, just like, no, you're supposed to do what I say. I don't have to tell you why, just stop. That is probably the number one thing that I can't forget about it. I can't let it go. I have to remind myself, not just on a daily basis, but hour by hour, like that's controlling, that's, that's abusive. 
And especially with my wife, there were so many times where I would be mean to the kids. I don't want my wife to know and try and cover it up. And there's always that fear of like, oh, no, I messed up again. Like, what, what's going to happen? Like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. How many kids do you have, Gus? We have four. Adam, what about you? First thing that came to my mind was owning my own stuff. That has been such a big part in our relationship, my recovery. My recovery journey is just acknowledging what it is that I need to work on and not trying to place blame on my wife, on I was abused as a child or anything else. I had to own my own actions. And when my wife was able to see that and trust that that's something that I am capable and willing to do, that bridged one of many gaps that I created. I feel like being able to give up a lot of the power that I assumed in this relationship and in my addiction through abuse and gaslighting, manipulating, being able to give that back to my wife and say, I will do whatever you ask me to do. My wife's pretty empowered and she's done a lot of that on her own. Knowing that I will also give her that peace of mind that, for instance, earlier on in this journey towards recovery, we went and bought a pop-up trailer specifically so I can move out of the house. And it was sort of like a backup plan. I was not working my recovery or acted out or I lied, whatever. She kicked me out into the pop-up trailer in the middle of the winter. I went. I didn't fight. She knows that if she asks me to leave, she knows that if she asks me to do something, that I will do it. That's part of me owning the fact that I give up my right to say, well, that's just unfair. Or do you realize how this hurts me? Or, I can't do that anymore. If, if I want to make amends for the crap that I put my wife through, then I have to be willing to drudge through the trenches, even though it's been years, torn of masturbation, it's been years since extramarital affairs, and I still know that if she asks me to do something, that I will do it. And she knows that if she asks me to do something, that I'll do it. She's asked me to do multiple polygraphs, and I do it. They're not cheap. To me, it's big things and it's little things, and it's just everyday things. It's my job to make amends. It's not, I'm going to take 10 steps. You have to take one. It's, you know, I'm going to take 10 steps, and I, I'm just ecstatic to see that you haven't taken 10 steps back. That's how I see it. That's the role that amends has taken in my life in, in recovery. Before we go to David, I want to put this in perspective. So all of us are working thing, working on things, right? Whether we're an addict or not. If I am an addict of anything, it is television. I love watching TV and movies. But I also have these struggles with my children, right? And so when we're talking abusive behaviors, like have I yelled at my children before? Yes. Was it abusive? Did I call them names? No. Did I hit them? No. Did I do this or that? No. But also, is there a healthier way to deal with it? And that might be where we all need to go is, is it abuse or not? Like, is yelling at my kid to brush their teeth abuse? Maybe, maybe not. Let's say it's not. But is it healthy? No. 
right? And so how can we move toward more healthy behaviors? Because none of us want to like go to jail for one mistake that we make yelling at my kid to brush their teeth or whatever. And so that's another reason I think that people are so worried about using the word abuse because it carries such heavy consequences, right? So Gus has so honestly talked about his kids and the abuse situation there. If we called DCFS or Child Protective Services or whatever, and they came over, and Gus might say, well, I yelled at them, and I grabbed their arm, and I spanked them or something. I'm not trying to discount or minimize any abuse that happened with Gus and his children. At the same time, let's say it's nothing that uh, DCFS or Child Protective Services would take into account. They're like, okay, well, that's not actionable. Does that mean that it's healthy? No. And so we're all working toward being more healthy people. What victims of abuse need to recognize is I am worth being treated well, and I am going to set boundaries around this abuse. Children are unable to do that, and so we're trying to teach them how to do that. But as this podcast is female women adult victims of abuse, what I want to say to you, my listeners, is it's up to you to decide what you want to set boundaries around. Your safety is your top priority, but only you can help you. Only you can decide what is safe for you or not. And so we're not going to let either child protective services or adult protective services or our husbands define that for us. We get to define that for ourselves and that's how we make our way to safety. So I just wanted to point that out and also to point out that with me, there's things that I'm trying to improve in my life too, just like you guys. So in some ways, we're all very similar. And if I do something with a friend, let's say, and she's like, wow, Anne just was a huge jerk to me. I want to set a boundary with Anne. That is her right to do. And we all have that obligation to set boundaries when we feel unsafe. So that being said, are there some abusive like tendencies or thought patterns or things with you that have been surprising to you? Things that you thought would be maybe easy to sort of stop and have been more difficult than you thought? It's kind of hard. To me, when I think of making amends and stuff, I think of basically I have to put forth my life to try and fix something that I really can't fix. And I'm not saying that's bad. I think that's what should be done. I am unable to understand it unless I am going through the process of healing myself. I have to go to therapy and stuff to start understanding, okay, this is how things should be. This is the process that we go through. I can't love someone else more than I love myself. And I'm not talking about like selfishness. I'm talking like genuine love and acceptance because I, I, I won't be able to understand it. And so a lot of the things I do, I go to therapy. I try and get as much information as I can about how to do things better. You know, I reading books on parenting, on addiction, on abuse. Ultimately, I try and listen to what she has to say and accept it and not try and reject it and be like, well, you're not putting that in the right way or anything like that. I think that's been the biggest help for my wife is me finding help for myself and being able to put that into practice. Because for the most part, I don't know about all addicts, but 
for the majority of addicts that I've met, they come from a place where they really want good things. They really want to be that great, amazing husband. They want to be that great, amazing father. They want love and connection. I'm not saying this to, oh, we should take it easy on addicts because I don't think we should or anything like that. I'm, I'm just saying deep inside, they're wanting to do these these things. They're wanting love and attention. It's been so twisted throughout childhood and life that they're addicts now. And so when we work on ourselves, we open up the way to give out and receive all those things that we've always wanted and just didn't know how. So speaking of that sort of living amends idea of like if she accuses me of something that I have done in the past a lot, I could perhaps let that go in this moment. So I surrender basically is what you're talking about. I'm going to surrender to this moment. That is part of a living amends. A lot of men will be like, well, what about my needs? I have all these needs. And really good therapists will say, well, you need to put your needs on the back burner for a long time. Your concerns right now should just only be for your victim and how you can help her and make her life better for a really long time. So that's also called living amends. Let's talk about that for a little bit. What are some ways that you have made amends or continue to make amends with your wife? I would I would say this from one of the manuals I've read. It's probably one of the most true things I believe in is the addict will not change until the pain of the problem becomes worse than the pain of the solution. I can't say this for all addicts or anything, but for me, my wife tried being nice. She tried being, oh, like maybe he just needs to feel more loved or maybe he needs more sex or maybe this or maybe this will help him and it didn't help. She tried being more angry and that didn't help. And it was the moment when she came to a decision, I'm going to move on with my life and you can either change or you can go away. And she kicked me out. The pain of recognizing that I'm alone and I will always end up alone and in despair. I don't want to live this way anymore. It was that pain that opened up a way to like, oh, I want to do something different. At least just try something different because where I'm at right now, I don't want to feel this way. We're, we are so afraid of that pain, but that's the only thing that will bring us back. I know a lot of the addicts will say, you know, I'm being punished. This is punishment. I've been a part of groups where there are men and women involved, there are husband and wives involved. And I've seen that where the addict is saying, I'm just being punished. People are just telling my wife to punish me by doing this and this. Um, but firm boundaries, sticking to firm boundaries, not just firm, but hard, real, safety building boundaries is an act of mercy towards me, towards an addict. That was something my wife did for me and it hurt. It was uncomfortable. I was upset. How did I, I threw temper tantrums, but it wasn't punishment. Truly, it was consequences on my part, but it was also me not really having boundaries and then expecting to you know, learn what they are and live, live in them. But in regards to 
these questions you've been asking, one of the things that's just been on my mind the most is that the addict isn't going to change unless he wants to. I know that might be hard for some people to think, like, if he reads this book or if he does this, goes to this therapy, then it's going to work. I've seen many men read, why does he do that? And he turns those stories and those definitions and says, you do the same thing. You're abusive. I've seen many men read the book, why does he do that? And the definitions that are in there on the different types of abuse. And they turn that around. They turn it against their wives and said, see, you've done this. Or you do this. And so you're abusive. And of course, that's a way for them to gaslight, to just kind of get them out of a little bit of heat, maybe turn the tables a little bit. I really think it's important to realize when the addict really isn't going to change. Because I've just seen a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Because the wives keep holding out, well, maybe this time, maybe this therapist, maybe, you know, the situation. But it is important to have a foundation of people that love and support you and can help you who are also good at setting firm boundaries because not every addict is going to want to change. And that's just kind of the hard truth. Gus and David, they both wanted to change, and that's why they have made the progress that they've made. I wanted to change, and I have made progress. I guess I would just caution the victims that best therapists and therapy and resources in the world isn't going to save everybody. But also, most of us do want to get better. Most of us do want to change and we'll do what it takes. That's kind of really just something that's been weighing on my mind during these uh, interviews, these questions. I could not agree with you more. My ex is still so abusive, still lies, manipulates, gaslights, blames me, the whole deal. He's the type that would read, why does he do that? And decide that I was the abuser. He's actually becoming a therapist to the extent of my knowledge, because I hold a no contact boundary. I know he's going to school for something about relationships and that particular school does have an MFT program. So in my little tiny sleuthing that I did, which I don't do much because I have no contact with him, I think he's becoming a therapist. So I don't know if I would even say most do. I don't know. We haven't interviewed. I would say most of the women that listen to this podcast have some serious things going on that and are trying to learn how to set boundaries. And we don't know yet what is in store for them. But what we do know is that they need to set those boundaries and wait from a safe distance to observe from a safe distance to see what that man is going to choose. And that safe distance may require a no contact boundary. It may require separation. It might I don't know what it's going to require, but you will be able to see what their behaviors are as you set those boundaries. But if you don't set the boundaries, you're not going to know exactly where they're at. And so those boundaries, like Gus and Adam have already said, are essential for you to know how safe am I. It's also essential for him to realize, okay, this is what's acceptable and this isn't acceptable. If you don't set boundaries, they're just going to keep doing what they've been doing before, right? Those boundaries are really, really key and the most compassionate thing that you can do. I really appreciate you coming on today to talk. I know their wives, but I don't know them personally. So I just want to put a disclaimer out there that they may or may not be the model of recovery. I'm so grateful that you came on to share and thank you for spending some time with us. 
If this podcast is helpful to you, please rate it on iTunes or your other podcasting apps. Every single rating helps isolated women find us. And if you're wondering, am I in an abusive situation? How bad is it? What kind of boundaries do I need to set? Please join Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group. We have multiple sessions a day in multiple time zones where you can talk with an actual betrayal trauma recovery coach. So go to btr.org to learn more about our professional services. If we have any men listening who are really interested in making restitution for hurting women, we partner with Abuse Victim Fund, which is a nonprofit that collects donations for women. So if you are looking to make restitution or if you're like, man, who's gonna help these women? please go to the bottom of our website and click on Donate to Abuse Victim Fund where you can make a recurring donation. You can make a donation to help women get services. If you're interested in helping women get the services they need, then go to our website, btr.org, scroll down to the bottom and click on Make a Donation to Abuse Victim Fund. Until next week, stay safe out there.